What I appreciate about boomers, I think we worked hard. I think we were hard workers. Now the motivations we can argue about, but we got things done and we were held to account. appreciate about the, the, the boomer generation was that they they brought with them some of those characteristics from the traditionalists and that many of them are very patriotic people, uh, very loyal, very hardworking, appreciate structure and I think they also, I think they kind of did for society a little bit like what Elvis did to, to music, maybe they did to society, kind of shake it a bit and say hey is this okay, do we believe in this, do we like this or are we afraid to go this direction and maybe consider this. I like the fact that they were willing to kind of push a bit against those traditionalist parents that they, that they had. The boomer generation, I admire them for their vocal opinions. They aren't quiet like the traditionalists were. They had a lot of things to adjust to. For one big thing is television came in during that time. They can adjust to culture and changes with a positive attitude. My dad grew up in pretty extreme poverty. He was one of six children. Talk about the American dream. He worked his way and he started as an intern and worked and worked and worked and worked and he retired a few years ago. But his work ethic for sure is something that I've always admired. And he still works so hard. He's always working towards something or creating something. But his value was on relationships in the workplace and at home and with everybody. One person that I know who's in this generation, he's a teacher at my school and he's one of the most hardworking teachers. He's known for always pushing the students and every day he shows up with a suit and tie to work and he's one of the harder teachers at school but he's also one of the best. So I think that just shows that he's very hardworking and dedicated to his job. When I start thinking I'm gonna be a little bit critical about millennials, I ask myself this question, which generation put linoleum on hardwood floors. Hey, what about our production team? Uh, this amazing, amazing stuff. They're behind the scenes but do all this great stuff. I've done a, a lot of really not smart things in my life and one of them is probably top 10 that uh, happened several years ago. I. Uh, Walked out of my house, took one step down into our attached garage and got in my car, closed the door, clicked my seatbelt on, put my foot on the brake, started the car, put it in reverse, put my foot on the gas pedal to go in reverse. And then there was this terrible, indescribable noise. It was the garage door that I forgot to open. So I might have said something I shouldn't have, I don't know. Uh, but I stopped and I was questioning uh, the purpose of life and why I was ever born and all this stuff. <laughs> then it, got, it went from bad to worse because I looked up and there she was. Not my beautiful wife, but my beautiful daughter, teenage daughter. And she was standing there in the door like this, arms of judgment as if to say, what were you thinking? Now, I don't know where she picked up such judgmental approach to everything. 
I don't know, I guess she saw it on TV, you think? Um, honestly, it was a, it was a pretty uh, humiliating moment, and uh, one we eventually laughed at. It was hard for me to see her treat me the way, you know, that I often treated her. I think um, we often treat generational interactions, which are just fraught with misunderstandings. We often treat generational differences with outstretched arms of judgment. How can you, how can you do that? What were you thinking? What are you thinking? Seriously? What? That doesn't make any sense. How can you be so not smart? And so let's just call them the outstretched arms of judgment. It's where we don't understand people who are older than us. We don't understand people who are younger than us. We just don't understand people who are different than us. And so we judge them. We judge their characteristics. We judge their attitudes. We judge their behavior. We just judge people who are different. We assume a posture of superiority where we are right they are wrong we have things figured out and are smart they don't and aren't and so we just look at them and say well how can these old people how can they do this and these young people they don't know anything about life they don't even know how to write in cursive and they can't drive a stick shift we could paralyze them with those two things you've probably seen those memes now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we roll out, we roll, throw our arms out, and we roll our eyes. And of course, I'm speaking as a baby boomer today, and I'm speaking in broad and general terms. And can I get an okay boomer from you? Let's watch this. One time we were riding in an Uber, talking to an Uber driver about Uber. Okay, boomer. Another one was, by now you should have a house, a full-time job, and be married. Okay, boomer. Got it going on that one. I don't think his mom and I said that, but he feels it. And then the last one was, if you get a tattoo, you will be unemployable. Okay, boomer. <laughs> Makes sense to me, but never mind. This sermon series is considering different generations, and Sean just did a fantastic job last week about talking to traditionalists, <clears throat> or about traditionalists, and I said, well, that was easy because you get to praise a generation that's not your own. I've got, I got to talk to my, to my own generation. You know, Nancy Barrow is a wonderful servant, and she is very good with stats, and she tells us that in our church, 7% of us are traditionalists. That means we're 75 years or older. And then those of us who are baby boomers, born between 64 and, uh, 46 and 64, make up about 23% of our church. Gen X, which is generally a small, smaller generation, born 65 to 80, 18%. And then millennials, who are also a large generation, 81 to 2001, make up about 20%. Then Gen Z, and we don't know, there's varying dates about when they start, but there are young people, and they make up the biggest part of our church. And so we need to, to love and respect them. 
So this morning I want to talk some about baby boomers, but I want to talk more about how to appreciate the beauty of diversity and God's plan and provision for us. Where you stand determines what you see. Where you stand determines what you see. Baby boomers were shaped by several different things. Soldiers came home from World War II, they got married, and they started producing babies. And there was a huge increase in babies being born. It was a baby boom. For example, baby food sales in 1941 were 2.7 million cases. Six years later, in 1947, it went from 2.7 million cases of baby food to 15 million cases. So it's a reflection of all these babies that were being born that, that wanted to eat and we wanted to feed. Hayden Shaw is an expert in generations and how they should get along, and he's written at least a couple books that I've read. And he says baby boomers were shaped by three major things. The first is affluence. In 1959, Life magazine declares for the first time a civilization has reached a point where most people are no longer preoccupied with providing food and shelter. So most of us, uh, baby boomers, grew up, most of us grew up in relative ease and relative prosperity. And typically we were raised in a nuclear family with an intact mom and dad. And, and the dad went out and uh, worked and the mom stayed at home and worked. And, and that's the way a lot of us were raised, it was kind of like leave it to beaver. And so that's what we knew. A second, a second factor was television. When I was growing up, there were three networks. There was ABC, CBS, and NBC. They didn't broadcast 24 hours a day. My first recollection of TV was that it was in black and white and I was the remote. Son, can you turn that TV? Turn it up. Turn it down, okay, whatever. So it's like up and down. I got a lot of exercise. And you know, there was not, they didn't broadcast 24 hours a day. They would go off at a certain time, about midnight, they'd come back on five or six in the morning. And there wasn't endless commentary or endless spinning. They just presented the news. You looked at it, you processed it, you decided what you thought about it. And so the, the shaping factor was that we all saw the same thing at the same time in essentially the same way. And so they kind of shaped us as a generation. We saw, we saw J.F. Kennedy's funeral all together and we saw man land on the moon all together. We saw Apollo 13 and that fantastic story all together. A third factor was the shift from wartime sacrifice to a focus on self. And so obviously this is related to the affluence. Many of us didn't have to worry about sacrificing to survive. So we had time to think about ourselves and boy, we did. And we thought about what we wanted. There was a lot of self-expression, self-exploration, a lot of self-fulfillment. We were a lot, of, I wasn't, but a lot of us were hippies. We were hippies and we went to Woodstock and that's kind of an icon of the generation. There was just a focus on self. We became idealistic. We became optimistic. We became hopeful. We became quite confident. We did stuff and we did it well and our music still is the best. Okay, okay Boomer, I got you. Now, <clears throat> it's fine to speak in general terms, but we need to remember that we all experience the culture and generational uniqueness as individuals. So I grew up in the 60s and 70s and my experience of life was shaped by these general 
general, general, generational things, but I also have a lot of personal and unique experiences that, that shape me for who I am, both good and bad. And, and, and all of us do. We all have that. For example, I grew up on a farm. And my dad, who's 88, taught school for 40-something years. And he enjoyed that, but he really loved farming. And I was the only son in our family. So my two sisters stayed around the house and learned from my stay-at-home mom how to do that kind of thing. And I was dragged all over the farm and I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but I greatly appreciate it now because I was taught the value of really hard work and responsibility and, and all those kinds of things. I learned a lot of stuff and I, I still know some of that. You know, we, we had hogs and we had cattle um, we were mostly self-sufficient. We butchered our meat. We had a huge garden. We lived simply. We just enjoyed that kind of life. We baled a lot of hay, and that's a real shaping influence on me uh, because I did so much of it. We had cattle, so we would bale the hay. We would bale ours, and we would bale our neighbors and other people around. My dad, that's how he paid for stuff. He would go out and bale people's hay. And, and of course, I got on the business end of it. I was on the wagon loading and unloading, stacking and unstacking on the, in the hay field and in the barn. And for many years, that was my summer. That's what I did. And it was a shaping influence. I remember when I was 11, we got our first air conditioner from Buck Lemon's store on the square in Bedford. It was a window unit. It didn't really cool the whole house, but we were really glad to have it. And we would literally sit there in front of it at times just to, to cool off. But I was 11 years old when we had first air conditioning. We had a, we had a telephone and it's what's called a party line. And now that, that doesn't mean you pick it up to, to have a party or have a good time. It means that we shared a phone line with 10 to 12 other people. Can you imagine that? Some of you can't even imagine. But we had this phone line. You pick up the phone to see if anybody was on it. If they, if they weren't, you could make your call. But if somebody, if you picked it up and you heard somebody talking, you were supposed to politely put it down and, and, and wait for your turn. Some people would listen in the whole time. So you go, get off the phone, get off the phone, you know. <laughs> I could go on, and I did at 9.30, and I'm just going to stop right now because I think I implicated myself in a potential murder case, but uh, never mind, I was just kidding. So there were, there were no cell phones, there were no voicemails, there were no, there was no internet, no podcast, no texting, no downloads, no Snapchat, no none of that stuff, no Zoom, nothing like that. And that helps explain why some of us are struggle with technology. We just, it's just like a foreign language to some of us, especially those who are older. The older you get, the harder it is. And the reason I make this personal is because we need to move from stereotypes to see the individual. And of course, focusing on the individual is very baby boomer of me, but I think it's valid. My point is that we all have stories, we have shaping stories, we have shaping events who form us into who we are. And oftentimes when we're interacting with somebody, we, we have no clue what they've been through. We have no idea. And if we would just take the time to try and understand and maybe even ask a question to, well, tell me your story. What, how are you shaped and formed? How did you get, how did you get here today? It might really make a big difference. When it comes to, to boomers and, and following Christ, like every generation, we have some strengths and we have some weaknesses. And one of the strengths that comes out of 
the baby boomer generation is our focus on individuality led us to focus on a personal relationship with God. We, we were more concerned about and are more concerned about experiencing God personally than we are communal rules. And, and so we want to know what does it mean for me? How, how does this text apply to me? And so there, the focus there kind of leads to a real emphasis on personal spiritual formation, which is not bad. But the downside of that is the focus on individuality caused us to selfishly want worship and other things a certain way, and that is our way. And so this leads to a consumeristic mindset, which leads to a term that you've probably heard called church shopping. It comes out of my generation, that the idea is we will shop for a right church. We will hop from one to another as we shop from one church to another to try find the right fit for me. I want this church to feed me. I want it to, to, to meet my needs. And so on the other side of that, churches figured this out. And so they started uh, engaging in a consumeristic mindset also to say, well, how can we shape our assemblies? How can we shape what we do in such a way that we will attract those who are shopping? So there's some things to think about. Come and see what we can do for you. So we had many flaws and, and weaknesses as a generation. Everybody does, but we have a lot of positive things to contribute and we have. And so if we were summing it up, we would say this, that baby boomers focused on the personal side of faith and how to love God with all that we have. Now, if you're not a baby boomer, how can you learn to love and respect us and appreciate us? And, and if we're boomers, how can we learn to love, and respect, and appreciate those who are older and younger? And this is, this is the most important part of the message today. Because it's where we trade the outstretched arms of judgment to the outstretched arms of grace-based embrace. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 starts out reminding us of some really, really bad news. He says, if it weren't for the grace of God, we would have no hope at all. In fact, we would be objects of God's wrath. His, his all-consuming wrath would, would destroy us because that's his holiness. His holy nature would just would destroy us. But then he, he goes on to say in verse 4, but... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's, it is by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on to talk about how we're saved by grace and not by works, but that doesn't mean we don't work and we don't have responsibilities. And he kind of sums that up in verse 10. He says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Then he moves on to what we really want to focus on this morning. He moves on to something that's very relevant regarding generations and regarding differences. Generally, he talks about how God takes extreme diversity and, and moves it to a place of unity. Specifically, he is talking about Jews and Gentiles who just absolutely hated each other. They not only had outstretched arms of judgment, they had outstretched arms of contempt. Ugh. 
They hated each other. Now, God could have easily formed a Gentile church and a Jewish church, but he says, no, there's going to be one, one church, because I want you to prove that you understand how I loved you by loving each other. So look at verse 14. He says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. In verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups by means of his death on the cross. Listen to this next phrase. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. We can come from different places and different spaces and by the cross of Jesus, we can stand in the same place. Where you stand determines what you see. And when I stand at the foot of the cross and I look, I see how horrible my sin is. I see this beaten, bloodied, bludgeoned man who's bleeding from his head, from his hands, his side, his feet. And I'm ashamed. But then I look and I see the love of God. Because this is the price that he was willing to pay to redeem me. So I see my sinful self and I know that's only by the loving grace of God that, that I am saved. And then I look at you and I know that, it, that you are in the same exact same situation that I am in. And I know that we both stand in the same place simply by God's grace. And Paul continues in verse 18. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Then verse 20. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So he's saying all of us as individuals come to the Father through the same spirit because of what Jesus has done and continues to do. And there, by the loving grace of God, we stand together and more than standing together, we are joined together. So ancient stonemasons would take stone and they would craft it, shape it to, to just what they wanted. And they would take another and do the same and on and on and on. And then when it was time to, to build, they would drill a hole in one side of a stone and they would insert a dowel rod. And then they would drill a hole in the other stone and they would line them up and, and scoot them together to where the two stones became one. And on and on it goes until there's this beautiful temple made. And, and Paul's saying that is a, that is a picture of what you and I are. As individual stones, we stand together in Christ, but then we are joined and, and fitted together to become a holy temple where the spirit of God dwells. It's the German idea of gestalt where the whole is greater than the sum of his parts. So you have a, a pallet of concrete blocks and you have a bag of cement and you have a pile of sand and a bucket of water. Well, all of those have value. 
in some way or another. But when you take the sand and the cement and mix it together and you add water and you mix it, you, you have mortar and then you can take the mortar and you can take the blocks and, and you can start putting things together and before long you have a, a building. And so the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so we all have individual inherent value as image bearers of God. And, and that's how I need to start looking at you, that you have inherent value as an image bearer of God we need to see each other that way first and foremost. And if we start there, then we can, we can start dealing with the differences that seek to divide us. We can even learn to appreciate and respect the differences as, as a part of God's plan. And we can actually enjoy being joined and fitted together to become something that's much greater than, than we are as individuals. Bob Russell, um, a lot of you know who he is. He long-time minister to Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, and he's a traditionalist. He's over 75, and he took a, a small church, and it's grown to 20,000 plus, I believe, and he was there for a long time, and he, he still writes a blog every week, and I get it every Sunday evening. It comes out about eight o'clock. About a year ago, he, he blogged about generational differences, and he, it got really personal. He told a time uh, when he was interacting with Kyle Eidelman, who is now the, the teaching minister there. Kyle was 26 at the time. He's a Gen X. And so Kyle was this up-and-coming phenomenal communicator. And they said, well, we, we've got to get him on the stage on Sunday. I mean, good grief. He's just fantastic. But Southeast Christian had a dress code. They said, you can't stand on the stage and preach unless you wear a coat and tie. So when they asked Kyle to speak... Kyle very humbly and carefully went to Bob Russell and said, I, I just can't wear a coat and tie. That's, that's not who I am. I'm not comfortable in that. I, I would feel like a hypocrite. But more importantly, I feel like that I can't reach my generation in a coat and tie. Well, Bob Russell, also very humble, very gracious looked at Kyle with compassion. He said, well, um, we're talking about worshiping almighty God. Let me ask you this, Kyle. If, if you were to go see the president of the United States, wouldn't you dress up? Wouldn't you wear a coat and tie? Kyle immediately said, no, I wouldn't wear a coat and tie if the president were my dad. To his credit, Bob Russell said, okay, I get it. You don't have to wear a coat and tie, but, but please dress neatly. <laughs> well, he did for a while, but then uh, Russell continues in the blog. He says, but then one Sunday morning, <laughs> here he comes out on stage. I think Bob Russell was kind of like this in his mind because Kyle came out with tennis shoes, jeans, untucked shirt, all wrinkled, and he just looked sloppy. But Russell was patient and let everything unfold, of course. And he said, Kyle Eilman went on to preach one of the most beautiful, powerful sermons 
scripturally based. It was just so powerful. And, and then at the end, he did something so different and so unusual. Kyle Eidelman walked over to the baptistry and he said, I am going to invite you today to come and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to actually be in the baptistry here in a second. And he got in the baptistry with his clothes on and he said, you can come as you are. You don't have to go back somewhere and change clothes and put on a baptismal robe. Just come as you are. It's hot outside. You can go home wet. It's not going to hurt you. Bob Russell's going, oh, whoa. But then he said, when the, when the imitation song started, here they come, dozens. And more than 100 people lined up to the baptistry. And Bob Russell said it took over an hour to baptize them all. He said, I learned such a valuable lesson that day. And he, he sums up the blog by saying this. There are all kinds of traditions that Satan has used over the years to divide believers, split churches, and make people miserable. As we age, it becomes increasingly difficult to accept changes in methodology. If we're not careful, we become hindrances to effective evangelism because of our negative resistant attitudes. Now he goes on to say we don't compromise the truth, we don't compromise what the Bible says, but so much of what we disagree about, so much of the stuff that divides us, it's just matters of opinion. It's matters of methodology and we've got, we've got to get over that and, and we've got to, to learn to accept others as Christ has accepted us, Romans 15. So we want to transform the outstretched arms of judgment to the outstretched arms of grace-based embrace, embracing others as sisters and brothers. And this happens when we see the outstretched arms of loving grace as we stand in that sacred space and place at the foot of the cross. How much do you love me, Jesus? How much do you love me? And it's like he says, I love you this much. And on the cross, he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 says. And, and do you know how far that is? If you go north, you will never go south. No, I'm sorry. If you go north, you will go south. But if you go east, you'll never go west. And if you go west, you'll never go east. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has taken our sins from us. And we asked that question, Casting Crowns asked that question a few years ago in a song, How Far? How far, and the song says, from one nail-scarred hand to the other is how far our sins are separated from us. The key to overcoming our differences, whether they're generational, political, racial, or anything else, is to first stand at the foot of the cross where the ground is level and everybody's equal. Where you stand determines what you see. And when I stand there and see the outstretched arms of love, I stand there with humility because I know, I know me. And I stand there with humility and then I can look at you through the same eyes of a loving savior who looks past the surface things, who looks past the age things, who looks past the separating things and sees us as we truly are and decides to love us unconditionally. So allow him through the, the power of the spirit to change this 
to this. Do something practical this week. As Sean powerfully suggested last week in his sermon, spend some time with somebody outside your generation. And I broaden that out. Just spend some time with somebody that you really, just totally different from you. You don't have, you're not condoning anything. Just say, tell me about your story. I just want to understand you. I want to, I want to learn from you. And you might be surprised. And maybe you can learn to stand together. We can all learn to stand together at the foot of the cross and operate from the basis of grace. Let's end today with this doxology from Ephesians 3. Listen to it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org slash messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.